Hello and welcome to the Creative Weirdos Podcast. Happy New Year. I hope 2024 is off to a great start for y'all. Thank you for hanging around. It's been a very busy start to the new year, but in all good ways, been able to get a lot of things accomplished that I've been wanting to, and I can't share all the way with y'all yet, but we'll be sharing very soon. But uh, we have so many wonderful conversations lined up for the show this year, and I'm starting this one off with my good friend, Dasaus the Bard, and we are taking a bit of a break from the comic book talk to get into some really fun mythology. This is a beautiful conversation. Please go support Dasos and all of his work. He just started a wonderful Patreon, which will be linked below. And uh, yeah, enjoy this conversation. It was super inspirational for me, and I hope you all enjoy it. Thank you for hanging out. If you want more stuff, check out the Patreon and my shop linked below. And that's it. Enjoy the episode. I'll talk to you soon. Bye. mentioning that you've been doing some reading and listening to some stuff about the Lucinian Mysteries and uh, Dimeter and a few other things. And I just want to let you kind of dive in there and uh, start this conversation off and we'll, we'll go where it goes. All right, cool. So um, part of that conversation arose out of um, a talking point I hear you mention a lot whenever you're interviewing people about... Um, I think it was Ram Dass giving shrooms or acid to the Mahar- Maharashi and mm-hmm. him basically saying, oh, okay, this is cool, but this is like what I'm dealing with all the time, you know, without yeah. assistance. And that is something that um, I, I can't remember the first time I heard you mention it, but I really keyed into that as something that I, I can almost relate to through my druidry um, and, and especially working through the ovate grade. Um, and it's just something I've, I've wanted to talk to you about. And then a lot of my reading here recently has tied in, you know, I've been reading Terrence McKenna's, uh, food of the gods. And I've also been reading the mysteries of Demeter, um, which is a book about, um, trying to not just, uh, reconstruct the Eleusinian mysteries, but looking at Demeter's myth and her entire mystery cult and the, the many different, um, possibilities of, of what the, the mysteries could have been. And the fact that they probably did factor some sort of a, a psycho, um, psychedelic or a psychoactive, uh, substance. And, um, and then it's just, there's been so many other books that I'm reading lately that I've, that have come to me from different, uh, people referring them and, and they all keep tying into, um, psychedelics, archetypes, mystery cults, and just like the concept of priesthood versus laity versus, you know, how does, um, well, looking at the cult of Demeter, you know, you had a trained priesthood who was steeped in a very complex mythology around um, the mother goddess, Dea Mater, 
means the mother goddess and you you can pack that down into demeter to get her name yeah um, why don't we start before you go into the because this is beautiful give a little background mm -hmm. on demeter if you can because i'm not super familiar outside of listening to people like mckenna and and such bring up these ideas but yeah give a little background that'd be wonderful demeter was um she's an older sibling to zeus and prior to hera she was a wife of Zeus, and okay. um, she she bore Zeus um, the daughter Persephone, mm -hmm. and um, and Persephone was later, um, you know, Persephone in early life was actually Kore, the maiden. Kore um, is like the the maiden archetype. Uh, as, as opposed to the, the, the masculine archetype would have been Kuros. And that's usually attributed to like Apollo is, is gotcha. often called Kuros. But Kore was, was Persephone's name and her maiden aspect as daughter of Demeter. And um, through an agreement between Hades and Zeus, Hades claimed Persephone as his bride and he kidnapped her. It's uh, an event called the Rape of Persephone. And... Okay. Um, it's it's largely taken to be like an allegory. There were a lot of what we consider like kidnap marriages or rape marriages in ancient mm -hmm. Greece that were not necessarily as violent as that sounds, but it was more like a ploy to for two people who wanted to be married to get married despite whatever political or societal um, you know different classes, the wrong families, whatever. Wow. There was the ability for the, the man to just kidnap the maiden, take her away, and then they come back and go, oh, well, you know, he raped me, and now we're married, and so this is what it has to be. Wow, and so because so, through a modern lens, it's always looked at as a very, you know, a kind of a moral that is not oh, yeah, a good thing. Oh, yeah, violent thing. And, and, every, and it's, it, someone was just talking about this with that uh, Christmas song, Baby, It's Cold Outside, how right. like a lot of people in the modern lens see it as this is a horrible, rapey song, but really right. the female protagonist is trying to make up excuses to stay because it's a moral taboo at the time to be right. unwed and be in, overnight with somebody in a house else and I, that's a it's weird parallel of things that i've been thinking about but continue sorry i just wanted to interject that little bit there no it's 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 great because it's relevant how the different evolving societal understandings give us um you know a completely different take on the same story yeah but, um, and it's not that one's better than the other or that there's like a moral i don't know it's interesting to me that like these the way these stories form themselves are specific to the time purposefully. And it's, it's so easy to um, look at them judgmentally, but to just step back and have that kind of higher view of them is very interesting and, and allows for something uh, different to pop up. It is. And it's a lot better to do that than to just gloss over and go, Oh, it was a different time. And so it's okay. It, exactly. It's actually better to take a, a moment to pick it apart and understand why it's different and why it's not yeah. necessarily okay, but a, a, a different understanding. Exactly. Um, Sorry. So go back. I, I didn't mean to oh, uh, no, derail us there, fine. but that was great. <laughs> um, so Demeter um, and this, at this point, she becomes um, now Demeter. At, at initially, she is the the goddess of of fertility, of the harvest, of the grain. Um, 
And the grain is going to be an important um, reference later on because um, when she goes into, when, when, when Persephone disappears with Hades and Demeter is trying to find her daughter, she goes into a, a very, uh, a very deep grief. She, um, she, because of her sadness and Zeus having made an arrangement with Hades, he's not doing anything to help her. He knows exactly what's going on with his daughter yeah. Persephone, but he does nothing to, to help Demeter. So Demeter basically stops doing the, the job of, of her entire domain, which is the harvest. And that is what created the first winter. And it was a long winter. Um, that there were no harvests, it was cold, people, you know, there was basically famine on earth because there, nothing could grow in the cold. And, um, and it was through that that eventually, um, you know, Hecate and Helios get together and they get, you know, they, they kind of help Demeter figure out what happened and Zeus relents on everything because humans aren't making sacrifices, but there's <laughs> no, no fat cattle to sacrifice. Yeah. So, um... And at that point, uh, Persephone has become the dread queen of the underworld. While she was in Hades' domain, she ate um, some pomegranate seeds. And because of that link, that's a, a, another theme that becomes popular is, you know, people go into the other world or the other realm and they eat something and now they belong to that realm. They can't come back from the fairy world or from the underhills. And so because mm -hmm. of that, Persephone becomes a part-time Chthonic underworld goddess uh, of uh, the dread queen of the underworld. And then part-time, she's an above-ground um, spring maiden flower goddess, uh, along with her mother, who is the goddess of fertility. So out of that story develops a really rich mythology and it it it's so much more involved in the the bigger mystery cult than the story that i just told but out okay. of that they find parallels and and this is where you know you you have a priesthood that uses these myths and rituals that they've developed around these myths for spiritual growth for their own personal development enrichment understanding and um you know, they have the time, they have the the ability to pass this information from one to the other, but that takes a lot of devoted time and becoming, a, a, you know, an adept in this mystery yeah. cult. And um, so you can't really convey that on a widespread uh, basis. But what you can do is combine... Uh, uh, an entheogenic experience and a, an abbreviated version of the mystery. And you can pass that on in like, say, a weekend. And that's yeah. exactly what the Eleusinian mysteries were. You, you went to the, the cult of Demeter of Eleusis and it was like a, a few days that were spent. You were shown something, you were told something, and you were uh, um, something shown, something told, and something revealed. And, um, and in that time, the, the people, the initiates, the, the lay people who just went to, to do the mysteries, 
they underwent some tr- sort of transformation. They came out of it not afraid to die. You know, not yeah. suicidal, not necessarily believing in, in, you know, any specific afterlife, but they had peace about the, the end of their own life. Yeah, and, absolutely. Um, you know, so aside from those facts, we know that um, Demeter was the goddess of grain. Um, Ergot grows in wheat. And mm-hmm. it's possible, we don't know, but it is possible that the priesthood of Demeter figured a way to make Ergot safe to ingest. Um, if they did, nobody's replicated it since. Um, <laughs> but, you know, I mean, there's very little about the mysteries that are n- known. So whatever yeah. secret, you know, whatever secrets they kept, they kept them well. But yes. um, it's also possible that the um, that the chemical assistance was opium because Demeter is often depicted holding opium flowers and um, opium flowers are one of her symbols. So, Interesting. But we do know that Alcibiades, the famous Athenian party boy, uh, uh-huh. who he, he, he was kind of an infamous figure um, during the Peloponnesian War, and he got okay. into a lot of mischief. Uh, there are famously, there are these uh, sculptures called herms that were found on roadsides through a lot of the developed areas of Bronze Age Greece. And they're a bust of Hermes, but, you know, about the midsection, it's it's formless, a formless pillar with the shoulder and head of the god Hermes. But about the midsection, there's also an erect penis. Alcibiades and a couple of his friends <laughs> went around and knocked all the penises off of the herms um, and, and were arrested for that. Well, one of the other things that Alcibiades was charged with was stealing the sacrament from the temple of Demeter of Eleusis and serving it oh, as wow. entertainment to his party guests. So, wow. you know, it had to have, been, you know, he wouldn't have done that if it was just you know, vinegar or, you know, yeah, yeah, no, no. Even if it was just wine, sort of uh, fun to it. Yeah. Pretty potent wine. So you wouldn't need to steal that from a temple. Yeah. Wow. Oh man. There's so much there and that's just, wow. Okay. So before, cause I'm sure there's more that you can get into here, but before you do, this makes me think so much of one of McKenna's raps and it may be in, uh, in fruit of the gods, but the idea that he traveled to, so he was, you know, training to become a scientist. And mm-hmm. through that, he travels to all these different um, places to try and and get tapped into that thing that's beyond science, that, that you know, universal imagination, this thing that, you know, you hear about. So he goes to India and he goes to all these different places. And it's all of these things that are circle around meditation and these lifelong devotions and practices, but there was nothing he could touch or feel or experience directly until he went to Mexico and had his first mushroom experience where he's like, Mm. Oh, this is it. You gave me something. I can take it. I experience it. And you know, it kind of set him on the path that he's went down to and is famous for. But Mm -hmm. I I think there's something to that, that, and he has a rapper too. And this is funny because it ties into a conversation I just had the, for the podcast that'll be coming out uh, a week before this one uh and he talks about how he since he's coming from a western materialistic culture he needed that very materialistic 
thing, that experience where he could feel, touch, sensorially um, experience the great beyond or the imagination or whatever you want to call it that he got to touch via the mushroom experiences. But, you know, if that's not the culture you're coming from, maybe you don't need that experience. Maybe you don't need that physical, you know, thing. And I brought this up to the uh, my guest from last week, Dr. Jeffrey Kripal, who's very knowledgeable in all of this stuff and comparative religions and, you know, met McKenna and you know, very involved with, with all of these lines of thought. And he brought up the fact he's like, well, you can't really look at it that way because the Eleusinian mysteries, obviously they weren't a materialistic culture that were, you know, also using some sort of psychedelic to gain access to these things. Same thing with indigenous cultures around the Americas. They had very, or, you know, strong practices with psychedelics and again, a very non-materialistic culture. So I was like, Oh, that's a great point that I never really thought about that. It's not just like, you know, material science, but there's something that pushes us to want to have a more direct experience of the spirit or the ethereal and it's really interesting to hear how those origins may have taken root at least uh mythologically which in my mind is as true as history at this point <laughs> oh yeah so um but, yeah uh, so go ahead oh well it's it's fascinating that you're approaching a point that like so I mentioned that there's a bunch of different books that I've been reading, you know, together and I keep hitting these same threads. And one of them is man and his symbols by Jung. And, um, one thing I find fascinating about Jung is that he approaches psychology in the classic sense of the word psyche, where it meant spirit. And again, if you tap Mm -hmm. into the, the mythology of Cupid and psyche, there is so much if you actually think about like if if you that's a long myth that i probably shouldn't get into but if you if you look at the myth and you think of psyche as as the spirit of a person going through a transformation and you watch how psyche who she encounters and how she handles everything it's like the stages of grief or you know any any sort of decomposition and recomposition cathartic experience you're watching that play out in the myth in the terms that the the bronze age greeks understood them and and jung very much approached psychology as spiritual work in as much as it is mental work and i think that that's an essential thing especially when you're talking about um doing psychedelics or you know you you have to remember that we are you know, spiritual beings having this sort of human experience. And um, that's where, you know, the entheogen, I think, just opens us up to the the fact that we are, we are consciousnesses, like having a sort of nesting doll moment. And, yes. and so you sort of like get to rise up or maybe sink down into another level of that nesting doll where you're sharing that with a whole lot of other people and other, you know, consciousnesses around you and seeing that and and experiencing that does fundamentally change you. You can't go to a point of not knowing that anymore or, or, and the thing is, is that I've had those kind of experiences, but I've never done psychedelics and I've, I've been working through, um, 
you know, and at this point I do kind of, I, I have an intention to do psychedelics at some point, but, um, you know, I've been working through the, the Druidry stuff and especially the material that my order gives for, um, for development. It's like all of the Demeter myth and the priesthood that I, I mentioned building the mystery school around the Demeter myth it's basically essentially doing the same thing with a different myth altogether from Wales, the myth of Caridwen and, and, and Gwion Bach. And Caridwen as a goddess, I'm not going to say she is like the Welsh Demeter, but they have a <laughs> lot of similarities from both being moon yeah. goddesses to both having, you know, grieving mother aspects. They both have odd misadventures with mortal children as a part of their grieving mother aspect. Um, Demeter, when she was grieving, she, um, tried to make a, a human baby immortal, um, and really freaked his parents out because she was like holding him over a fire and she hadn't told anybody about it. And her parent, the, the parents come in and see her holding their baby in flames and they freak out. And she's like, yeah. well, fine, I'm out of here. And they're kind of like, good, maybe, maybe <laughs> wild. Um, yeah. So and that's super interesting as far as those kind of um archetypes that cross over culturally because it seems like there's a good amount of those from like people like young point out pretty frequently and you know not to reduce them to the same things like you said but it is interesting those threads that seem to be woven throughout the world and the history of cultures and and um, a journey or a, a walk through the forest of souls uh, is a book by Rachel Pollock about the tarot. And she poses mm -hmm. a question because tarot has so many different origin myths. It's Egyptian, it's Kabbalistic, it's um, Romani, it's all of these different things. And, and she poses, what if, you know, what if the tarot was invented and and the renaissance era to fulfill all of these myths that were going yes. to come about it what if you know it's what if all of these systems were 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 calling out to the universe for this tool yep. and it was given to all of them at once you know that's beautiful Re retro causality is yes. closing the time loop. And, and, and like i i think about that stuff a lot like on personal levels but to think about it in a a giant you know esoteric or cultural level is very interesting i love that and she she points out that that basically that's a, a really useful way to look at divination to begin with not as fortune telling but you know, just look at, at, at the present and then justify the past or then, yes. you know, explain the past. I, I am here. And because I'm here, my parents met, you know, so many years ago and, and liked each other enough to reproduce, yeah. you know, and, um, absolutely. No, I think there's something to that. Like McKenna used to talk about, it's more of the future attracting the past. There's mm -hmm. a great attractor that's pulling everything. Or, I mean, you've touched on two giant themes that I'm constantly thinking about and are talking about on this podcast, as far as that, um, that recognizing that, uh, paradox that we are both at once material and spiritual and the two mixing and, uh, kind of, 
remembering that it is not one or the other is such a big theme in all of this stuff that I think is really, uh, whether it's psychedelics or paranormal experiences or uh, creative experiences, that's at the heart of so much of it. And mm -hmm. I think in, uh, logically extends to the idea of things like retro causality and really um, kind of letting you see how whip, how uh, how flexible things are, how much like we are not in control, but we're fully in control at the same time, if that makes sense. It does, which like, I mean, um, the note that I wrote to Teddy and where the wild things are, I, yes. I point out, you know, when you realize that you're in control, that you're in charge of your imagination, those wild things become something completely different. Um, yes, absolutely. I, I, I think that was beautiful, by the way. I <laughs> like it's you made Allie cry like she is a sucker like she. One of her biggest pet peeves is receiving books that aren't like signed or ah. like have a little note in them. Like she loves giving books, and I think her favorite part is writing the little note. And like so, when she opened that up and read that, like she, yeah, it was it, it was perfect. That's Thank awesome. you so much for that. It's, it's becoming one of my yeah. favorite things to do. I've been sending books out a lot lately, especially ever since I started volunteering at the banned book library down in Rockledge. Which, um, hell yeah, if your it's listeners aren't you aware do. of how many books are being banned and challenged in uh, conservative states, it's worth looking into Moms for Liberty and exactly how uh, antithetical to their own name they're acting right now. Uh, yeah, but, it's um, uh, it's not just a little table like where I am, mm -hmm. banned books are just a little table at Barnes and Noble that are like, here's the banned books, but yeah. none of them are like really being, but and it's uh, it's really nice to have friends all over in places that are affected by these things a lot more to remember that like it's uh, it's a problem that's giant because. Uh, well, we don't have to get into that's a whole other <laughs> podcast. I feel like that we should probably do together at some point because Definitely. I think that is really important right now. But yeah, yeah. So yes, go support that. <laughs> <laughs> but um, um, oh. so yeah, jump back in. I'm sorry, right. I keep uh, derailing us here, but go ahead and, and hop back into this because this is so this is wonderful. I'm with, really enjoying it with druidry. Um, you know, we we. My order, we work a lot with the the myth of Caridwen and Taliesin, and well, Guion Bach, who becomes Taliesin. And that's, you know, um, I guess I'm probably, I should give some context on that story. But Caridwen is. That'd be great. Um, Caridwen is a, a Welsh goddess. And one thing I like about her as a goddess is she she kind of pushes what God means because she was very much. A, a, a mortal queen. She was married to Lord Tegid, who was the lord over the region around Lake Tegid. And um okay. and they had two kids. Um Kriwi, who is the the um the daughter, she was beautiful and highly favored and very blessed with all kinds of talents. And then uh their son Afagvi, who was also called Morfrin. His name means utter darkness and he was ugly. And in the time, again, contextualizing things um, with that cultural understanding, there was very much the belief that good things were beautiful and bad things were ugly. And so this child being not wise or good looking had very dim prospects on his future. And so Caridwen, being a concerned and loving mother, she goes to uh, the, the Druids and she reads the books of Ferilt and finds 
a recipe for a potion called Awen that will impart otherworldly wisdom. And she wants to brew this for her son, Afagdi, and um, so that he'll have this, you know, supernatural wisdom and that will offset his negative qualities. Well, the potion is very involved. It takes a year and a day to brew, and it has to be watched constantly. Things have to be added at the right time. It can never be allowed to boil over, and it can never be allowed to boil dry. So she hires a man and a boy that's in his charge. It's not his son, but the man is Morda, and Morda means the sea in Welsh. So that gives you a bit of a clue as to, you know, we're working with archetypes and primordial ideas yeah. more so than li literal persons. In fact, Caridwen, mm -hmm. literally her name means the crooked white one and is an allusion to the crescent moon. That's another similarity with oh. Demeter. Demeter is always pictured with the crescent shaped sickle so oh that's so cool um but um morda has in his charge a little boy named guion bach and he ends okay. up being the one who has to do all the fetch quests and collect good you know the 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 items for the potion while morda for the most part just watches and makes sure it doesn't boil over or boil dry a year and a day passes, and Caridwen is coming back to her seaside cottage where these two have been working. And right as uh, Guyanbach is adding some of the last ingredients, the, the potion splashes, and three drops of the potion land on his thumb. And what do you do when you burn your thumb? Mm. Yeah, you know, right you, you suck your thumb, and that... In that moment, he ingested the three drops of Alwyn. So the cauldron shatters. All of the remaining potion flows out and, and like pretty much leaves a, a trail of dead vegetation as it goes. And Caridwen in that moment knows. She feels the power of, of her spell move. And she knows what has happened. Guion Bach in that moment is possessed of such supernatural wisdom that he knows he's in danger. And so he transforms into a hare. She transforms into a dog and chases him to the river. He transforms into a salmon and jumps in. She transforms into an otter and chases him. So he transforms into <laughs> a wren and flies up out of the water. And she transforms into a falcon. He flies over a threshing house, which is where wheat is. Again, you've got another wheat grain harvest high in. Wheat yeah. is threshed on, on the thresh, and, and that's separated from all of the, the chaff. And so he yep. transforms into a grain of wheat and drops into the threshing room. Caridwen lands in the threshing room and transforms into a hen and eats all of the wheat on the floor. So it doesn't matter which <laughs> one was Guion Bach, she got him. Um, yeah. Well, as she transforms back into her human form, the 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 very much alive grain of wheat, Guion, transforms into an embryo, and she then gestates and gives birth to Guion Bach. Now, in that time, clearly tempers have cooled. You know, she knows that she can't really exact revenge on him and her spell that she had been working on is foiled. She needs a new plan for Avagli. But she does not gain any love for Guion Bach. 
in a maternal sense. Okay. So when he is born, she tosses him into a leather bag and sends him down the river. And that's another, <laughs> you know, the baby in the basket running yeah. down the river. That's another Moses, common theme. Yeah. Um, and Absolutely. Uh, so he ends up... Um, Washing into a salmon weir, which is kind of like a stationary net, and most places they're illegal because they're very effective for catching fish. Um, <laughs> but he is pulled out by the the lord of the of that land's son, and when he comes out, he's he's like a small child, fully intelligent and very smart and poetic and possessed of great intelligence, and he has wow. and again physical appearance conveying supernatural qualities he has a very radiant brow and so he is named taliesin mm. which means the radiant brow in welsh and um and taliesin in welsh culture and in druidic culture uh, uh, druidic history is is a prominent figure and there actually was a, a poet and i believe the 14th or 13th century named taliesin who is commonly just accepted to be an incarnation of the bard himself. Um, oh, cool. So using that myth, a lot of Druids go through a series of meditation. I'm not going to say all because there's so many different schools of Druidry, but a, <laughs> a lot of the ones in my order go through a series of meditations and occupy the each of the, the occupy the persona of each of the characters in that story and then you know through that you undergo a series of personal transformations and through that you learn a, a whole different framework of meditation um practices uh before I was a druid. I didn't think I could meditate because a lot of what you mm -hmm. hear is transcendental meditation. And that is, I, I'm convinced at this point that that's just a very neurotypical exercise because I can't do no mind. Like the more I try to do no mind, the further from no mind I get. Yeah. But I have found through you know, the, the meditative techniques that the order uses are not that. And, and I have found that through different things, like, um, I think one of the first things I discovered was I could watch bees just buzzing around a clump of flowers and I could just sort of zone out on watching the bees do their thing. And that put me in the right state of mind for the meditative exercises where I was, you know, open and subject, suggestible and, 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 and attuned to, to that kind of mental interaction. And, you know, mm -hmm. so for the longest time I was like, um, trying to find bees around flowers so that I could properly meditate. And I really kind of got to understand the whole concept of going out into the wild and remote places away from people to do the work. Um, when bees went out of season, I found that I could watch rippling water or running water, and that could get me into the same mental state. And then as I um, developed as a fiber artist, I found that I could actually zone out in the exact same way while weaving. Um, and then mm -hmm. uh, while just staring at fabric and kind of like getting lost in the, the thread patterns and everything. So 
now rather than needing to go out to the remote places to watch bees, I can just pull a piece of fabric out of my bag and, and kind of zone out in that and meditate. And, you know, so there's no one right way to meditate. I'm sure that n- probably none of your listeners are going to meditate staring at a piece of fabric. But um, the thing is, is that there are so many ways that a person can find to get themselves in that meditative headspace that aren't sitting and thinking about yes. absolutely nothing that I would encourage totally. anybody who has ever thought <laughs> I can't meditate to look at a different uh, book, <laughs> you know, because um, yeah, it, no, it can definitely I, be absolutely. a frustrating experience if you think that you have to sit and think it, about nothing for it to work. And even the people that are from that more traditional or transcendental school, a lot of the smarter ones will also say that it's not for everyone. Like Ram Dass was a big one who it's more, it's about quieting the Mm -hmm. mind. It's not about the, and that no mind that you're referring to doesn't mean, and this is where I think a lot of people get tripped up. It's not about thinking about nothing. It's about going into that state. And I I like when people use driving as an example, it's that flow state Mm -hmm. where like, you're not conscious of what's happening. It's just happening. If you're observing, it and you and like i think that for me and for a lot of people i've talked to the creative process is that like when i get up in the morning and do my like meditative process it is not sitting down and you know counting breaths and like you know like some of that is in there like i do and i do end up utilizing some of that but it's moving a pencil it's like scratching it's the it's the lead scratching at the paper it's like the whole process of that is the meditative it's what gets me into that same place you're talking about from the fiber or from staring at and one of the things that i really like to think about and you kind of um we're, we're inching towards a simplification of getting into that state, right? Like, you know, going from having to go out and find bees or running water to bring it to something that you have in right. your house that you don't have to leave the house anymore. And like, how, how can we simplify that even more? Yeah. You know, like I, I, think about Mitch Horowitz a lot in these respectives because he's uh it's one of the big things he champions is well what's the simplest most effective form of these uh transformational processes Mm. like how can we do this the easiest and like the most effective so we can do more in the world as people you know like the 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 point is not to transcend and not to do anything and just sit somewhere and make a thousand you know beautiful uh fiber works or drawings the point is to get somewhere to where you can do more for the world right. for the people like the the whole idea of the bodhisattva vow is to come back and, and it's not that you're going to fix the world but it's, it's to uh, gain the whatever you want to call it whether it's enlightenment or uh, that peace of mind or whatever and come back and share in whatever way whether it is you know for me it's making silly drawings about nonsense that's my way of sharing these things and like it can be different not it can be different for everybody but i think sometimes people forget that a lot of the stuff doesn't end with just the self-transformation or the self-transformation might not happen without more of the sharing and the reconnecting and uh, reinvesting in community in a million different ways. Yeah. Um, So two things that I want to jump back on real quick and all of the, and both of the uh, myths that we were just talking about, like in the, and 
I wanted to kind of ask you as far as your reading of these things and the the studying you've done of them, and maybe it's more in the druidic side of things or whichever you're more familiar. How, how does humor or absurdity kind of play a role in some or playfulness, uh, if hmm. that's a better word? But how how do those type of ideas play into these? Because that's something that I think about a lot. That's a really good question. Um, I would say that there's a bit of playfulness in the the, the Caridwin myth. There, there's a lot of wordplay as I've been able to point out. But um yeah. You know, there there is a later part of the myth where where uh Tellias and the, the reborn Guyan Bach goes on and and kind of makes a bunch of fools out of a another noble's court. Um and and they're reduced to literally they can't even talk in response <laughs> to him. Um, so there is, you know, there is the absurd and the and and the um, playful in that aspect. Um, I don't know of an immediate element of that sort in the in the Demeter myth, but I would definitely say that in Greek myth as a whole, there's a lot of it um, going on. There's there's so many yeah. different. Um, you know, so many different elements of wordplay and, um, and the, the gods themselves, you know, there, there are a lot of things that arise out of the gods just sort of being bored. And, you know, the, um, (laughs) one thing I, I do like about mythology and in the, in the Greek and the Welsh sense is that the gods, um, they don't operate in the way that we think of gods, again, from the modern perspective. Um, Christianity being a dominating force for so long has sort of given us an idea about what a god is that is really only relevant to Christianity. To a lot of other religions yeah. or uh, cultures, the idea that a god is all-powerful or all-knowing or perfect in in any moral sense would be very, very foreign. And especially with the Greeks, you're not dealing at all with all knowing or, um, or perfect beings. You're dealing with very uh, human personalities and just given immense levels of power over certain concepts and themes and uh, and that's a really yeah. fun thing to me because I I think that it makes them more approachable as concepts and and you know in in the Welsh myth you know Caridwen again isn't just a goddess she is a fully human queen or or lady of <laughs> of a of a political region so you know yeah. that it gets into a point of how much were these historical figures and how much were these concepts and everything? And I think, you know, looking in the Brythonic myths, we see Arthur almost make that apotheosis from very, very real historical uh, war chieftain, brother-in-law to a couple of saints to an almost god-king, eternal protector of Britain on the same level as Bran the Blessed. (laughs) You know, he almost made the jump yeah. into fully divine, but, you know, with the colonizing forces being what they were, storytelling didn't develop in that way for him. But, yeah, that's super interesting. 
Yeah, no, that go, oh. go ahead. You're, you 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 had something else. Oh no, I just kind of realized that you had asked me about um, humorous themes or or something like that, and I kind of went off on a tangent about apotheosis. So. <laughs> No, that was great. That was absolutely great. I, I, there's something to that, though, that blurring of the historical and the mythological. And I think it happens in like all over the place that we don't even really recognize, mm-hmm. whether it's from the you know, more modern kind of like, you know, I talk about Ramdas a lot on here and half of the stories he tells. One of the reasons I like the way he talks is because he'll tell these stories of these, um, whether it's a Maharaji or these different uh, mystics that he'd meet with these very wild powers that he, you know, they become mythologized in this way that like probably would never happen without a Westerner kind of telling their Mm. story or like re re imparting it. And and there's always this element of humor to it. And I always, I think that's what hooks Mm -hmm. people a lot of the time to, to people like Ram Dass. There's this one, and I'm probably going to kind of butcher it, but it's always, uh, it always sticks out to me where there's essentially in it, um, a very scientific-minded dude that's very, uh, very rich, traveling in India, and he gets really sick, and he's just like, n- not dying, but like really messed up to the point where he's trying to find any kind of local help that he can, and eventually he gets invited to, um, I don't know if it, it, I can't remember the the name of the person, but it's an Indian mystic of some sort, and he goes to stay with them for a couple days, and as soon as he walks in the room, he's like this is all bullshit. This is fake. This is nothing like I'm, I'm out of here. This is a waste of my time. And you know, so he ends up sitting down and hanging out for a little bit and just completely does not buy that this guy is in touch with anything or like a special person or a mystic or any of this. And eventually he says, write your wife a letter and give it to me. And so he sits there in front of the guy and he writes out a letter to his wife and he's like, you know, dear so-and-so, I am feeling horribly ill and I'm wasting my time here. How are the kids? And did Susie do well at her checkup at the doctor's the other day? And please make sure that you tell Sam that I'll be back at this point. So he gives the note to uh, the, the mystic and the mystic takes it and he folds it up he sticks it under his butt, which is bare. He's, you know, naked under his robe. And he, he puts it under his bare butt and he sits there for a minute. And he takes it back out and he gives it to the British guy. And the British guy unfolds it and it's a response from his wife. And it says, well, I'm so sorry to hear that you're sick. And I, Susie degraded her checkup and I'll make sure I tell Sam. Blah, blah. And then, like all the details are directly responded to. And the dude is just like, you know flabbergasted wow. and it ends up staying and i just love those stories of like he's like all right well you don't believe in this at all and here's a way but like at first when the guy gets the he's like grossed out because it's from yeah. like it just was in this dude's butt <laughs> like he has probably been sitting on this pillow for like you know <laughs> hours if not days and like i just i love that there's this like almost kind of like poop yeah. humor mixed into this like religious like spiritual mystic uh, story and again i probably butchered it because i haven't listened to it in a while or or read but i i like those elements and i feel like a lot of the times when you get into those uh myths from you know whether it's greece or a whole bunch of other places there's these like really ridiculous absurdity and like this humor that helps transmit the information in a different way and unfortunately too infrequently um and especially with greek myths um do we get to hear myths in the the language or the parlance that they would have been told person to person 
mm. in the day to day. So we don't we lose a lot of the word humor and and the the jokes because uh, and you know this is one thing that's been a big issue with with the Greek classics is most of the translations that we're working from right now were done by Victorian men, you know, and and informed very mm. much by Victorian sensibilities. And now we're getting, um, oh gosh, I, I need to look at something because I'm bad with names. But um, <laughs> don't worry, I'm even worse. <laughs> we're getting uh, Emily Wilson, and um, you know, there's several other women in academia. I'm trying to scroll through a list on Audible. Madeline Miller, um, who are doing contemporary translations of the Iliad, of the Odyssey, um, you know, and we're, we're getting, you know, the same story, but a very different telling with a different translator. And especially uh, with women doing the translating where, you know, you don't have quite so much occurrence of the word horror <laughs> and myth as you do with the Victorian and you know I mean the Victorian men were kind of liberal with with calling goddesses and 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 mortal women by the by that word and other you know worse and and imparting yeah. their very puritanical morals on on the stories that they were telling and whenever you get that removed, you you get a lot of opportunity for that kind of humor to come through, um, and for you know things like an explicitly gay telling of the Achilles story or things like that, um, that you couldn't have had in Edwardian academia, you know. <laughs> yeah, no, that's super interesting, and I, I imagine that will keep uh, progressing as time goes on here, and there'll be a lot of new. Uh, new information and new little bits of knowledge to glean from it all. Um, the other thing that's really struck me over the last couple stories that you've just kind of relayed here is the amount of death that goes on and the kind of tie that this all seems to have with uh, with kind of yeah get, getting comfortable with mortality and and the fact that like what I, I like things that make you think about consciousness because inevitably that leads to thinking mm -hmm. about death or the vi or vice versa the other way around they both work and i've been uh you know going through phases of talking about consciousness in a lot of different ways and thinking about it in a lot of different ways and using uh the myths to kind of enter a new a new view to form a new view on it is really interesting to me. And that really struck me when you were just talking about these and has it kind of influenced the way you think about consciousness? I mean, I think we talked on our last episode that we both subscribe to a pretty non-local version of consciousness. And uh, is that, is, do these myths, whether it's the Greek or the Welsh kind of influence these things or, or re-solidify your yes. views on them? Um, and, and again, that goes to like the, the meditative practices and the ritual framework that um, mystery cults in a sense have built around these things. And I would, I would consider my order may not call itself a mystery cult, but I would say, you know, in the way that it operates, it very much is, uh, or it could be seen as one. Um, you know, using them as allegories to explain that exact non-local consciousness. Um, it's, uh, it's kind of hard to explain 
in a condensed form, which is probably why it takes a year to do the first grade of the study. But it's it's really yeah. interesting to to look at the myths as much more than just a single story, but but several stories, and not just several stories, but several interconnected stories of a single alchemical process, basically, and then to go through that alchemical process. Um, is is where I I feel like saying I I can I can not easily but I can voluntarily induce an entheogenic experience is something that I have developed through that that process of of learning and and it's been a very involved thing but it's you know um, I kind of look at it very much in the you've told another story about somebody who went to i think it was sedona and got abducted by aliens and they basically said i went to sedona and got abducted by aliens because i went to sedona to get abducted by aliens <laughs> and yeah yeah uh, um yeah totally grant morrison and yeah that's one of my favorites uh at Catman okay. do he goes Sorry. To, but yeah totally <laughs> exactly oh no you're good you're good that's uh that's b probably my most old story <laughs> and uh, one that oh, oh go ahead sorry i didn't mean to cut you off oh no you're good you're good okay, no, so you go. there is an element of that like um some of the druidic practices that we get into is is very much like go into your inner grove, which is what we call, you know, basically the other space that you're working on. Go into your okay. inner grove and and set yourself this this sort of a workspace and then see what happens. Invite this kind of a being to come meet you. And, and then, and for the longest time, it was hard for me to engage with because I'm like, well, I'm sitting here talking to myself. And finally, my mentor kind of got me to go, yeah, you are now talk, you know, <laughs> and, um, but, yes, but once yes. you, once you like sort of surrender to the, the weird, silly feeling of it and open up to what possibilities can happen, um, that's where it gets really interesting because I I can vividly recall a time that I was I was in my inner grove I was my task at hand was to build and tend a healing shrine which all of my inner stuff looks very bronze age grease so you know the white pillars all of that going up and everything and I had an encounter with the god Apollo and it wasn't like angelic choral moment of behold i am the god apollo but it was kind of like you know if you're <laughs> listening to a norse myth and there's a, a gray cloaked figure with one eye and a long beard you know that dude is odin even if he says i'm not odin yeah absolutely. so this figure yes. that was just radiating golden light comes to me at this healing shrine that i'm tending and says i want you to build a liar and learn how to play it because that is going to be a tool of your healing craft. And I'm just like, you know, I'm, I'm a pretty creative, handy, crafty person. I kind of rolled with that. I was like, okay, you know, I'll, I'll learn how to make a liar. And he stopped me and said, no, you know, you're going to come out of this and do it. And I was just slammed right back into conscious awareness in the apparent world and knew how to build a liar. And That's amazing. 
that's amazing. You know, I have made several of them since, and I've I've given a few away, and I play them not very well, but uh, I'm learning. And it has, you know, in three times that I can specifically name, having the lyre as an instrument, as a as a tool of creative expression, has been a healing uh, element to me. And it's just like, that's not something that entirely came from within me. I did not know how to, you know, I didn't make up how to build a liar from inside myself, but it's something that I contacted and connected with by doing that inner work and building the right moment internally for it to happen. So... Totally. And that lines up with so much, whether it's uh, if you look at the history of science or the history of art, like that's how this stuff happens is from moments of inspiration or and when you're referring to like an entheogenic experience that you can kind of develop or bring on, is this the type of experience yeah. you're talking about where you have like this is that that's beautiful because that was going to be one of my questions is kind of defining that a little bit more. And I don't think you could have done better than that story right there because yeah, that's, that's perfect. I, there's something to that though. Um, ideas are really interesting and where they come from and how, how often they come, but don't stick around. But the ones that really do and force action upon yourself are, there's something special to them. And there is, I subscribe to the whole or, you know, currently like the idea of ideas having people, Mm. vice versa than people having ideas. And I really feel like there's a practice or a way to be a better receptor to those things. And I think what you're describing is one of many ways where you can kind of uh, condition yourself to be a receptor for these ideas. And how can that not lead to that thought of, you know, non-local consciousness and like this whole idea of, it all you know, i love it because it, it leads to a connector point and it leads to more personal connection than anything else if you if you look at it right and that's really interesting to me i've been doing a lot of talk about comics recently and one of the things that i'm uh getting ready for is a whole talk on peanuts and mm. charles schultz and i've been listening to a lot of interviews with charles charles schultz and i mean peanuts is one of my favorite comics i wasn't like a huge comic book kid i loved mm. comic strips and peanuts was one of the early ones i had one of those like you know happiness is a, a puppy book collections from pretty early on and like just really connected with a lot of it and it's really interesting to hear charles schultz one of the questions he gets asked a lot is are you in is your personality represented via the different peanuts characters like is part of you charlie brown part of you lucy part of you linus and he like almost always adamantly is like nope that is not the case like i'm sure bits of me end up in some of these characters but it is not conscious but like he denies it essentially except for this one interview where he's like you know i've spent years denying this and just saying no these are just but yes yes it's all there it was not intentional but it's all 100 percent there i am lucy and linus and charlie brown and it's he's much older and like the way he says it is just it's almost defeated. <laughs> like it's almost, but like he was having that experience of non-local mm. consciousness at the board that you can get from like experience those the the, the myths that way right. we were just talking about and like being able to put your individual aspects and in all these different archetypal characters that 
if he consciously tried to do that with peanuts, it probably would have failed and never been the cultural icon that it is. Because I feel like when you try to execute things like that, it comes across as trying too hard or insincere or not coming from the source as Jack Kirby Mm -hmm. calls it, you know? So him just kind of stumbling upon it and creating what he wants to create and that being what it is makes it so that everybody has that experience. Because, like, I think we all relate to that. When you read the Peanuts, sometimes you feel like Charlie Brown. Sometimes you feel like Linus. Like, sometimes you kind of... That's one of the beauties of these comic strips. And, like, yeah, I don't know. That's what it made me think of when you were talking about that version of the Greek myth. And, I mean, I think it's, it's worth noting that a lot of pop culture functions as modern mythology, whether we intend it to or not, you know, just as you mm-hmm. said, some days you, you identify with Linus, some days you identify with Charlie, some days you identify with Pigpen. Well, you know, same with the Greeks. That was their pop culture. That was their, their modern media. And some days they could understand, you know, Hera's frustration as a, as a scorned wife. And some days they could understand, you know, Aphrodite's frustration in, a, in an unhappy marriage. Okay, I'm getting into a lot of <laughs> themes here. Yes. They had a lot of unhappy wives in Greek mythology, but there was also the, you know, that was also an expression of a a deeply patriarchal society where, you know, um, it's, it's easy to think of Hera as, wow, what a bitch, but it's harder to sit and go, well, where was Hera able to vent her frustrations with Zeus? You know, yes. Did she do the right thing? No. But did she have any other recourse? Also, no. (laughs) No, 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 no. No, that's such a good point. I think part of where the magic comes in or where you can really tweak that is when it's not just identifying with the different characters, but it's saying, okay, today I need to be more Lucy and I need to put on that Lucy mask. And like Grant Morrison talks about this beautifully in their book, uh, Super Gods. And it is essentially... They lay out this whole idea that some days you need to be Batman and you need to be a detective and you need to put on that Batman mask and other days you need to be Superman and you need to be indestructible and to be able to fly and be a Martian from another. And it's all about wearing these different um, identities when they suit the situation that you're in and using them as that kind of uh, Wilsonian idea of reality tunnels more than just like, oh, yeah, I kind of identify with all these things. It's, It's taking that control of the imagination and saying, I'm going to use this identification as a way to uh to better my situation or to make things better around around myself or you know very similarly i mean looking at the caridwin myth the character of guion bach it's 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 possible to identify with a, a powerless child in very tumultuous confusing circumstances who feels powerless and it's it's easy to you know go through that journey with him to the transformation into Taliesin and now he's not you know the powerless little child but he is the the clever you know the most clever in the room and uh, the hero of the story and you know there there is so much and that's just one character in that myth um but yeah that's so beautiful yeah. Dude, okay, so we've been going for almost an hour, right? And I am uh 
I'm trying to be more conscious of not letting ah. these go too long, and I'm getting to the point where I'm like going to be <laughs> rambly uh, pretty soon. So, but I have a few things that yeah. I wanted to run by you that made me that kind of popped up in, throughout the conversation, and uh, one of them is with uh, druidry and your current practice and the mythologies. Like, I. I'm always interested in seasonal mm -hmm. practices, right? And all of these different things. So what kind of uh, winter seasonal practices or myths come about from your, from your study of Druidry and stuff? Is there something particular that, you know, you kind of lean into during well, this it's, time um, of the year? In the Northern hemisphere, it's, it's coming into winter. So, you know, we, we basically look to nature and you see the, the sort of folding in the dormants of the earth coming out of the, um, harvest now for me we're actually and and like i um i'm very blessed to have a, a bit of a pagan community i don't uh work exclusively with druids but i have a cups uh group that's the um covenant of united uh, covenant of unitarian universalist pagans and um yeah so it's cool. at the local uu church and it meets every other wednesday and we're actually kind of putting our own little tropical spin on celebrating the planting season. And, and we've planted greens and we're tending a garden because we can do that in Florida. Amazing. But, um, but yeah. That's awesome. And um, for me personally, I have been um, in a much more Northern Hemisphere meditation with the with the season of death, but that's largely because I'm about to con conduct a funeral, and I've been sort of mentally preparing for that. But or uh, actually, a celebration of life. Wow, that's a heavy. That's a heavy. It is, and it's something that has also arisen out of my Druid practice. But it's something that. Um, you know, at this point, I feel ready to do part of the training that I've been receiving is navigating those exact things through ritual. And and so, you know, going through a, a celebration of life, especially from uh, a green pagan perspective, mm -hmm. is is about taking the group through a ritual of catharsis. And, mm -hmm. and so... Um, helping them navigate their grief and their their feelings for the deceased and uh and i think that that's pretty thematic for the season but yeah no that's pretty spot on a minute ago you mentioned how you know pop culture has become you know the modern mythology and stuff like that and i think a lot about how with that being the case and i mean the world is still mm -hmm. covered in ritual, right? There's rituals that take place and people act ritualistically all the time, every day, but mm -hmm. they do it unconsciously. And one of the things I think doing things like what you're doing is you take back the power of that ritual. And like if it, by diving into something that's historically ritualistic or and there's a million ways you can do it. And I just think that there's something really beneficial to applying ritual to things like a celebration of life or a passing or all of these big life experiences. And we already do it. So we might as yeah. well be conscious of it and, and do it to a way that, you know, resonates with us and, and people around us that is helpful to our Christopher Hughes is a Druid in uh, my order. He's also the head of the Angel Sea Order of Druids. And he wrote a book called uh, As the Last Leaf Falls, A Pagan's Perspective on Death and Dying. 
and it is really good okay. and really worth reading, not just to understand um, what pagans believe about it, but also it's a great book to read in terms of preparing yourself to die just to to kind of like think about the questions not just spiritual questions but practical questions and the interesting thing about christopher hughes is that he's also a a, a medical examiner or a mortician so he he knows not just the spiritual ins and outs but the practical ins and outs of being a corpse so (laughs) we're all going to be one one day (laughs) we just talked about even less and like that's what's so fucked up about some of the cultural things that we live within is that like you know the spiritual part of death is talked about very uh, infrequently let's say and even in like some of the more uh i guess esoteric or magic or spiritual side of things or paranormal these realms where they will talk a little bit more about death that logistic yeah. side is still never brought up like the few times i've heard Um, people like death doulas and these beautiful angels Mm -hmm. of beings that live on this earth that really focus on that side of the like not just the comfort and the big uh existential uh you know issues that arise dealing with those but the how do you close a checking account how do you you know all these little things things that that you think if you never talk about you'll never have to deal with them but then you end up having to deal with them with no plan yes and that can be devastating. Yes, yes, no. Yeah, totally. I'm uh I'm going to be talking with somebody very soon that does some of this death work and is very proactive in this space. And I'm really excited. We met via interests in oh, Ram Dass cool. and such. Obviously, it was a big part of of his work, uh, is is working with the dying. He was, you know, uh through all of the AIDS ec- epidemic in the eighties and everything, that was pretty much what he did was sit with dying folk. And like it was it was one of the things that really one of the first teachings I ever heard from Ram Dass, and it comes from, I think I've mentioned that you mentioned this to you before. A lot of his teachings come from a channeled uh, spirit mm-hmm. named Emmanuel. And uh, one of the first things that Emmanuel uh, imparted to him was that we're all walking each other home mm-hmm. and that death is like a tight shoe. And the, it, you take off the tight shoe at the end, it's a release. It's in like you know, all of these things that sound really beautiful but when you go to apply them in a situation he was very upfront that you can't tell someone these things when you know you've just lost somebody or they're going through the process of dying and he would explain that what the only way to really uh do anything is to work on yourself so when he's sitting with dying people Mm -hmm. he's just working on himself the whole time like then they see through that this um this crack in the sidewalk where they can you know escape the current reality that they're in or however you want to put it and i think there's something to that with whether it's death or a million other things a lot of the times i've come to this realization parenting a million times at this point a lot of the times the best way to teach or impart something is just to work on yourself and to try and you know live as an example type deal yeah that's tough (laughs) especially from a parent's perspective because you've got that inner drive to be on the ball about everything (laughs) oh yeah oh yeah no i again this goes back to one of these themes that keeps coming up where i 
parenting is a great example of it. There's so many ideas that I hear and I understand and I know are right, but implementing them is yeah. damn near impossible. Like almost incredible. You know what I mean? Like, and it's whether it's um, just very simple kind of like, uh, I don't want to, I don't know the rest, right word to say, but essentially whether it's really simple ideas, really big ideas, there's something that's like a barrier that's hard to dissolve sometimes to get to that functional part of them. Yep. <laughs> but I guess that's just human, oh, yeah. human nature, right? <laughs> <laughs> awesome. Well, dude, all right. I think this is a really awesome place to wrap this up. And I, now I have a couple episode ideas and actually I really think going like I am currently working on this little series of comics and stuff like that. And I think this fits in really well to to it, to be honest with you. Like, I think this is a perfect example of, like you said, comics are just the modern mythology. Everything we just talked about. That's what I mean. And to a T, that's what Kirby is influenced by. I mean, all of his stuff is very much taking these ideas from Greek mythology and intertwining them with spe- with future space uh, motifs and things like that, which is my oh, favorite. Yeah. Taking the old and smashing Bridging it with the sci-fi future, you know, like that's the good awesome. stuff. Um, <laughs> yes, exactly. That's the, that's the perfect uh, explanation for a lot of Jack Kirby's work for sure. But now I have a whole interest, a whole another series of interests uh, that I'd love to talk to you about oh, here at some point. So we'll do this again soon for sure. And yeah. Would you like to leave? Is there anything you'd like to wrap up with or anything you'd like to say before um, we get out of here? Check out my shop on Etsy reset 20 studio and uh, follow uh, Dasos underscore crow song on Instagram. And I think that's about it. <laughs> Do it. I'll have all those linked. Yes, I will make sure everything's linked and definitely go support everything. I have so many beautiful packages and gifts awesome. from you now that I Teddy is just... I can't wait to send you some of the stuff he's written in his Pokemon journal. So it's just... Yeah, it's so cool. It's so cool. So yes, thank you for everything. Thank you for being here. Oh, thank you for being a friend. Thank you. It's it's been awesome to get to know you and your family and everything. <laughs> it's been wonderful. Um, I had one thing I want to add real quick, and it's actually a question you asked the last time I was oh, on yeah. the show. Uh, wrapping up, you asked what I thought Please. the next magic wand was, and um, I think it's like the. Okay, so automation tends to get a bad rap right now, mostly because of how it's being applied. But I think if we were smarter mm-hmm. about what we're doing, like 3D printing and the robotic arms that can just like package stuff and assemble stuff could be doing so much more for people than than what we currently are. It's amazing. But um, I've been getting into block printing and like the, the Pokemon journal cover that I, I printed. Um, yes. You know, I can't carve that well. I can't carve rubber and rubber's expensive. Um, you know, 20 bucks worth of rubber is like four, four, um, eight by six blocks. So maybe, uh, eight, eight, four yeah. by, or, um, yeah. So really expensive, It's but like yeah, it's expensive 20 material. bucks worth of 3d printing filament. And I've got like 40 different block prints in my hand whoa that you know i can't carve this well but i can i can draw this well and i can upload it and and slice it into a 3d model on my computer and then print it 
And so it's, it's really revolutionized the art that I'm able to produce just by being a steady hand for me in some cases. So I think that there is, I think there's a lot of potential to unlock in technology like that, that we could be doing instead of like bankrupting the, you know, the working class retail service industry (laughs) right now. Oh. Absolutely. I mean, I uh, always think of my one of my favorite people, Doug Rushkoff's line is that we don't have like an AI problem or an automation problem. We have a job problem where jobs should not be associated with right. what they're associated with in our culture. Like jobs should not be associated with the housing concept or of earning or healthcare. Those should be based living. Yes, yes, exactly. That's not a thing yeah. that should exist anymore. And once we stop that, then what you just described is exactly where it's going. And there is something to that. I talked a lot recently about this transition that happened in the early 1900s from uh, going pretty much a media base that was all magazine and print formatted where the illustrators before photography were the ones that Mm. were paid thousands of dollars for each painting and they were defining culture they were defining fashion everything because there was no pictures it was only drawings and paintings and these representations so if you wanted to start a new trend in footwear or you know women's fashion you had to pay somebody a lot of money to draw Mm. or paint things really well once photography came around that was not the case anymore you could you know pay somebody half the amount to take a picture and it would accomplish the job better in a lot of circumstances as far as the owner of the publications exactly now this is seen in a lot of uh schools of thought to be the death of the illustration industry and the fact that like all of these jobs were displaced because now all these people that spent all this time training in this uh skill that was going to make them a lot of money the jobs aren't there so all of those people start trickling down to make the things like pulp novels and comics and all of this like lower right. form of art right but that art was made better because they had these what they called morgue files which were hmm. photo reference libraries like the the thing that killed their job aspirations made their artwork better in the long run because they now had endless amounts of photo reference and there's something to that there's something to that same thing that's happening right now this thing that's coming around and kind of like you know displacing monetary gain and jobs and all of this stuff you can utilize those tools to make right. the current art better and there's that's right. not talked about very often so we're getting there <laughs> and yeah that's a it's a it, yeah. it's an interesting dichotomy and i think that's what uh a lot of everything we just talked about if nothing else, it makes you a little bit more comfortable with uh, paradoxical ideas or mm. living with a dichotomy. And and the fact that like it might not be a bad thing, like that might be the point. Like like the fact that like there is this constant, uh, yeah, uh, dichotomy or paradox might be kind of uh, sewed like the into back the and fabric. Forth of never really ends. It just okay keeps with changing that. and <laughs> shifting around. You know, there's there's always that give and yeah, take relationship. Yeah, I was I know. Forces. Yes, I I know nothing about Kabbalah, right? But I was listening to somebody talk about one of talk about Kabbalah the other day, and one of the oldest stories she said in the Kabbalah tradition is that, and this is kind of the language she used. I'll probably again butcher it a little bit, but I thought it was super interesting that in the beginning there was one, and the one it was just love, mm-hmm. like pure love, right? It was so much love that it had to create 
to to share the love. So it, it had to create this dichotomy or this pluralism because it wanted to share and have the experience of sharing this, uh, this wholeness of love. And that, you know, split that creation of duality is what essentially leads to mm -hmm. all of the suffering and everything else that is seen throughout, you know, history, but it all came from an act of love. So that's why at the end of the day, it's all love. And I, again, could be butchering this, but I think there's something really interesting to that, that like, if you are in a state of just like, you know, pure, I guess love is the best word for it or imagination or whatever. There's this need to almost <laughs> like fuck yourself. Like there's this need to like, be like, you know what, I'm going to screw this all up. And like, you know, uh, there's something interesting to me that that seems to be a, 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 at the core of a lot of mythologies as well, that like everything's going well, but I decided that I have to have this experience and it just, it's going to happen. And that's it. Like, We're that's getting really into like Ted Danson's line in the good place. He's like, there's something so human about ruining something to have a have more of it <laughs> yes exactly exactly man i forgot about that show i loved that show that was great <laughs> awesome well yes. dude okay i'm gonna wrap <laughs> this tangent. up for real this time that was exactly <laughs> what i thought would happen you know no we'll, we'll we'll start a whole new episode for those but thank you again for being here i'll link everything for you at the, at the uh show notes and right. yeah we'll do this again soon you too have Enjoy a good the rest of your day <laughs>